Welcome. My name is Dr. Jonathan Vorse, and thank you for downloading our podcast today on Working the Word. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to receive new podcasts every week. Thank you for your support at jvorse.org and enjoy the message today. All right, the next question that we're going to talk about today is... What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I've gotten this question for years. I mean, from so many different people. And why, why would we ask this question? Well, the reason we would ask this question is because according to the Scripture in, in Mark chapter 3, verses 22, actually verses 22 through 30, um, we find where Jesus was talking about this, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's the only sin that the Bible says that there is no forgiveness for. So I want to read it to you. And I want, to, uh, I want to read it in context, and I want us to take a good look at this today. And I'm, I might say this before we really get going on this, that I, I, kinda, I, I pretty much knew the answer before I started studying it, but my big challenge became, how do I explain this in a very clear and precise way where even a child can understand it? So when people leave, they know what it is and what it's all about. And it took me about three hours, the Lord working with me, took me about three hours to kind of craft this answer. So I'm going to give you about a 10-minute or 15-minute answer uh, off of something that took me about three hours to put together, okay? But by the time we're done, I think you're going to understand it very well. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse number 22, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, that's talking about Jesus, and by the prince of the devils, cast he out devils. Now, I want you to kind of lock that in your mind for just a few moments because we're going to refer back to it as I'm talking to you and trying to explain this to you toward the end. I'll kind of explain to you why that statement and this context is important. By the prince of devils, he cast out devils. And then Jesus said, he called unto them and said unto them in parables, and I want you to lock this in your mind too, how can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan cast out Satan? So that was the question that Jesus asked. There's a, and by the way, there's a beautiful book out called Jesus the Master Coach by Dr. Joseph Umidi, and, and he deals with 100 questions that Jesus asked. And so uh, maybe you can find that on Amazon and pick it up and read it. It'd be great, a great read. But Jesus asked that question. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? And then he goes on and he said, and if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. I chose the King James Version specifically for that one word right there. The Bible said that he is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. So, uh, so we see here that Jesus... Uh, how, it, it seems like that he just immediately got off track, but he didn't. When you understand the context of this scripture and what I'm getting ready to explain to you, then you will understand why Jesus immediately defaulted to this thing 
about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The scribes were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he cast out devils. So what he was doing was he was involved in an activity that in their view was reserved only for God. And so because of it, they accused him of blasphemy. Now let's look at the definition of blasphemy. It means to arrogate, which means to claim without justification the prerogatives, and I knew people would want to know what that is, that's a right or privilege exclusive to a particular individual or class of God. So the definition in the Webster's Dictionary of, to blaspheme is to arrogate the prerogatives of God or to claim to be able to have the privileges of God. The New Testament understanding of blasphemy can be found in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2 where Jesus was talking to people and the Bible says that he would forgive their sins and the Pharisees would say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they said he was blaspheming because he was forgiving sins. So he was involved once again in a God activity. So when we go back to what we were talking about there in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through, through 30, and we see where they accuse Jesus of casting devils out by, by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, and Jesus comes along and he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He was laying the groundwork for what I'm getting ready to say to you. Satan does not have power over Satan, okay? Satan... There's no, there, are not, there are not two Satans. There's one Satan. And so Jesus said, I couldn't do that because I'm not Satan. I can't cast devils out by the power of Satan because I'm not Satan. And then he goes on here and he begins to explain this. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan rises up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but has an end. And then he goes on and he talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So when we understand the, what the word blaspheme means, which, to, which means to arrogate the prerogatives of God, and we find other bases in Scripture where Jesus was accused of blasphemy, where he was forgiving sins, and they said, you're blaspheming because you're trying to act like God, then we come to the conclusion that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to try to replace God with yourself. You see that? To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to try to replace God with yourself. Jesus said, how can Satan cast out Satan? He can't because there's one Satan, okay? He can't, listen, you, you, can't, you can't blaspheme the Holy Ghost unless you are trying to replace God with yourself, okay? And so then we go on and we see where Satan had this problem. We find it in Isaiah chapter 14. The, it's, the, it's the famous five wheels of Satan. It said, he said, I'll ascend myself into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. And he said, I will be like God. He said, I'll be like the most high God. This earned him his exit papers from heaven. Satan tried to overthrow God, so he was kicked out of heaven. He tried to blaspheme. 
He tried to, once again, the definition uh, to blaspheme the Holy Ghost is to try to replace God with yourself. That's what Satan tried to do in Isaiah chapter 14. We find that in verses 13 and 14. And so he tried to uh, replace God. That obviously didn't work out too well for him. So in Matthew 9 and Mark 2, the scribes accurately, listen, they accurately accused Jesus of doing something only God could do, which was forgiving sins. And if Jesus had not been God, they would have been correct. God cannot blaspheme himself because God is God. God cannot replace himself with himself just like Satan cannot cast out Satan. And so we see the context of that passage of Scripture. Well, we go to the Garden of Eden. Satan was cast out of heaven. We go to the Garden of Eden and he still had this problem. He was trying to be God. He was trying to be God. And the Bible said in the Garden of Eden, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he tells Adam and Eve, you know, God said, God told you not to eat of this because he knows that when you eat of it, you will become like him. You will be as God, okay? And so Satan still had that problem. So here's something I want you to lock in your head. If we say there is no God but me, then we are guilty of blasphemy. You say, you see that? If we say there is no God but me, we are guilty of blasphemy. The Holy Spirit is God. We're not God. The Holy Spirit is God. And to say that we are is blasphemy. Now, I've got a few points to ponder because I wanted to drive a few things home here. It's impossible to believe. Everybody say impossible. It's impossible to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and blaspheme the Holy Spirit at the same time. Impossible. You can't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and be guilty of blasphemy. The reason there is no forgiveness for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is because of the nature of that sin. A person, the nature of that sin, a person literally believes that they are God. Secular humanism. A person literally believes that they are God. So how can the God of the Bible cleanse someone of their sins if that person believes they're God? Does that make sense? So how can the God of the Bible forgive someone of their sins if that person believes they are God? Now I want to go back for just a moment and I want to read verse number 29. He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, the Bible says in the King James Version, but is in danger of eternal damnation. The reason that there can be no forgiveness is because the person believes they're God. So the sin cannot be forgiven. Listen very closely. I'm getting ready to pop it up here. This is a key point. The sin cannot be forgiven, but it can be rescinded. The sin cannot be forgiven, but it can be rescinded. 
What does that mean? Okay, I no longer believe I'm God. And if I no longer believe I'm God, then I must believe there is a God. And at that point, you can ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and He can come into your heart and He can forgive you. But as long as you believe you are God, you are in blasphemy and there is no forgiveness for that mindset. Clear as mud? No, no, I want it to be clear as fresh water. I don't want to be clear as mud. Clear as fresh water. Hit me with some questions. Next question. No, 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 no. I mean, oh, let's okay. do a little follow-up here because um, I think this is a very, very, very important because yeah. listen, let me, listen, people get tormented by this. They're tormented by it because see what happens is the enemy will come to them and they'll say because they've heard it all of their life, you know, and people come up with all kinds of interpretations of what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Oh, you were making fun of the Holy Spirit. You were making fun of somebody shouting because you were making fun of somebody shouting, you blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That's not true. That's not true. You might have been making fun of somebody, but that's not true. The technical definition for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is I believe I'm God, and because I believe I'm God, then I've tried to displace God. I've tried to remove Him from the throne and place myself on that throne. That is blasphemy. Okay? So so if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you love God with your heart, then you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You, you are not in a place where you're not going to be forgiven of your sins. It is impossible to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right. You actually kind of, in a roundabout way, answered what I was going to ask. Um, I have never heard that definition of it before. Um, I've heard before when people say, like, um, when you speak badly against God or, like you said, make fun of things, what is the difference? What would that be considered? Because I know that I've heard that be called blasphemy before if you're speaking against God and different things like that. Well, if I speak against you in a bad way, it doesn't mean I'm blaspheming you. It just means that that I don't agree with you and uh, and we have a different point of view. And uh, there, if, if people speaking against God and speaking... Uh, bad things against God was blasphemy, then half of the world today is not going to go to heaven, you know? And and that goes completely against what the Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And let me throw a little caveat in here. Whosoever means whosoever, and that means people who have in the past maybe blasphemed God and had that truth uh, or, or that belief inside of them that they were God. Because secular humanism teaches you that you are God. But what happens when the secular humanist all of a sudden comes to their senses and they realize, you know what, I'm not God. You know, and, and then they go on a search for God. See? And so that's why it's so important, I think, to pay attention to that word in, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 29 where Jesus said that they are in danger of eternal damnation. It did not say they were eternally damned. Jesus said they are in danger of eternal damnation. And they are in danger of eternal damnation uh, if they believe they're God. But when they come to their senses and realize I'm not God, then the blasphemy ends. As long as they're in blasphemy, there is no forgiveness. Okay? So 
just speaking against God and, you know, he, he's, he's a pretty big guy. He can handle that, you know. Um, and people speak against me. I still love them. You know, that's just the nature of, of man. That's flesh. Uh, the next question is, is Jesus really the only way to get to God? Why is Jesus the only way to heaven? Um, <laughs> I put this down here. Is this a question or an accusation? Um, because sometimes it feels like an accusation when people are talking. We live in a society that embraces pluralism. And um, I mean, Oprah Winfrey even said that there's many paths to God. A very famous minister that I could, if I said his name, everybody in this place probably would know who he was, uh, believes in pluralism. He said there's many paths to God. Uh, just uh, most recently, uh, another famous minister from Australia uh, was seen on video. Some of you may have seen it. And he very flippantly, in about 30 seconds, said that Allah and Jehovah are the same. We're all serving the same God. We're just coming from a different place. That is just not true. We live in a society that embraces pluralism and sees tolerance as a virtue, even if that tolerance embraces sin. I've never seen in my life a day as, as bad as it is today when it comes to this. When I stand in this pulpit and I just open up the scriptures and I try to teach and preach in love, but when I open up the scriptures and address something that is not politically correct, people get viciously angry. And all I'm doing is saying what the Bible says. I'm just teaching what the... And you know something? I love you enough to just take the risk. I will just go right ahead. If the Bible says it, that's what I'm going to teach you. That's what I'm... Whether it's politically correct or whether it's not, I'm going to teach you what the Word of God says. Pluralism finds its basis in Eastern mysticism. Pluralism... Uh, is not embraced in the Bible, but it finds its basis in Eastern mysticism. Jesus said in John 14 and 6, He said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And that's what Jesus said. So we as Christians, that's what we embrace, but, but, but we have to have more than that, don't we? We can't just say, well, the Bible says it because the person asking the question might not believe that the Bible is the Word of God, right? They might not believe that the Bible is true. And here is the question that they always come up with, all right? What about people who've never heard of Jesus? If you believe that Jesus is the only way, He's the only truth, and He's the only life, what about people that have never heard of Jesus? I'm referring you to Psalms chapter 19. I want you to go there, if you would, please. Psalms chapter 19. Here's what the Bible says in verse number 1. It said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiworks. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. So we see here that the heavens declare God's glory, and the skies show the work of His hands. Now, that's from day one. That's from the day that God created the earth. So whether someone has heard the name of Jesus or not, the Bible said that all creatures groan for their Creator. So there is an innate desire built into humanity 
to have a relationship with God. You know why? Because that's what we were built for. We were built by God to be a worshiper. We were also built by God to be a worshiper with free will. God's not going to force you to serve Him. He's not going to force you to worship Him, to lift your hands and to magnify His name. God's not going to do that. Otherwise, He would have just made you an angel or a seraphim or a cherubim. I probably would have been one of those things that He put six wings on and looked like a little bat. I'm like, what in the world? Where, what all these wings here? You know? No, we're made especially in the image of God after God's likeness for the purpose of having fellowship with God. You can't take that out of humanity. You can't take it out of humanity. Even if someone in a foreign land somewhere never technically heard what we would call the name of Jesus, the heavens over their heads still declare God's glory and the skies still show the work of His hands. Now let's go on down. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Verse 3, there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. In today's vernacular, we could say there's no culture where the voice of God is not heard. So, you can go into the remotest parts of the jungle, if you would like, and there is somebody somewhere trying to figure out how to worship God. Okay? So, here's what the Word says. If we seek Him, we'll be found of Him. So I'm of the opinion, according to the Scripture, I'm of the opinion, just based on that, and I'll give you some more here in just a moment, that, that those who seek after God are going to find God, and God's going to reveal Himself to them. That's what I'm of the opinion of. Now we go down to verses number 7, and let's read verses uh, 7 through 11. So we see, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies show His handiwork, and the Bible said that there's no speech. Uh, there and there's no language where their voice is not heard. Then we go to verses 7 through 11. Here's what the Bible says. The law of the Lord is perfect, doing what? Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statues of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then verses 10 and 11, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And so we see that the conscience of man is pricked by the hand of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. Doing what? Converting the soul, the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So we give our testimony. That testimony helps people make a decision to follow Christ. The statues, the things of God are, are right, rejoicing the heart. And then you just go on here, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. And then the Bible says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. And verse 11 is the clincher Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. So, God's perfect law is described in verses 7 through 11, and, in, and, and then our conscience, that voice within us, convicts us according to verses 12 through 14, and you can keep reading there, but uh, according to that, 
our conscience convicts us when we violate that law. So my question is, where does that conscience come from? Where does that conviction come from? God teaches us what's right and wrong. He built that in us when He made us. He teaches us what is right from wrong. And so that's another proof there that God not only reveals His handiwork to us, and not only does He describe it in languages and ways we can understand, He also places within us a conscience, and that conscience is tied to the fear of God, to the judgments of God, to the favor of God, to the blessing of God over our life. So this passage shows us that God has revealed Himself in a general way to all humanity, and all humanity is accountable to Him. So, to answer the question, is Jesus the only way to God? The answer is absolutely yes. He is the only way to God, and God has revealed that to us in the Scriptures. Any, any questions? I think that you just hit that right on. I don't have any questions at all. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, here's the fun one, and it'll be the last one for today. This is the fun one. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Does God care what I wear, especially when I go to church? <laughs> Does God care about what I wear, especially to church? How many times have I heard that? And there's this battle going on, you know, sometimes between... Uh, different uh, uh, generations and whatnot. Well, you should you should wear a suit when you when you get up there and you preach. You should wear a suit. And then there's another generation that'll come to me and say, you know, if you got up there in in jeans and tennis shoes and a pullover or a polo shirt or something like that, that's what you should wear because you're going to reach a genera different generation and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and so uh, there's a couple of, a couple of things that I just want to say before I really get going here on this. Um, how hypocritical is that, really? I mean, let's think about this. We're preaching to the lost, come to God as you are. And when they do, and they get up from the altar, then we tell them, now before you come to church next week, put on a suit. Now, how hypocritical is that? Okay? Then someone said to me, well, you dress up for the President of the United States. And I just really quickly said my relationship with the President of the United States, although I don't have a relationship with him, but my relationship with the President of the United States would be totally different than my relationship with my God. My relationship with my God is a lot more intimate than my relationship would be, would ever be with any President of the United States. Doesn't matter, okay? And so... Uh, don't come at me and say, well, you'd dress up if the president came. You'd wear a suit if the president came. That president, I'm never going to be close to him or her or whatever, but I'm close to God. I mean, my goodness, he dressed me in my birthday suit because <laughs> I was born, I was made by him. I was crafted by him, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, so we're, all right. So, so the question is, does God care about what I wear, especially to church? And the answer is... Yes. God does care about what we wear. Not just at church. The thing, especially when I go to church, was just something I threw in there. But does God care about, we, about what we wear? And I think the answer is yes. And here's the reason for that, okay? Um, God's Word teaches us to dress in a way that would not be a stumbling block to other people. That's what it teaches us. 
in the message translation in 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, it says this, but God does care when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leads a Christian still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. So God cares about what we wear. He doesn't want us to dress in a way that would be a stumbling block to other people. Lust is a real battle for a lot of people. Listen to me. Lust is a real battle for a lot of people, and immodest dress can cause a whole lot of people to sin. And I don't want to be the cause of someone sinning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. I want to read this to you. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30 says this. It says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. I used to tell my son all of the time, it's not the first look that gets you in trouble. That's a good job God look. Okay? All right. You're, you're, I mean, we were, we were created by God to notice good-looking women. Men were created by God to notice good-looking women. And if you married a man, then he was able to notice a good-looking woman. So that's awesome, okay? It's the second look that gets you in trouble. It's when you go, whoa, good job. Whoa. That, there's where your problem comes in, all right? The Bible said if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, then he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. Man, what I could do with her, I'm going to rock her world. That's wrong. That's lust. But I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust, lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's prop more prof, or for it's prop, profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off, cast it from thee. For it's profitable for thee that one of your members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So does God care about what I wear? Absolutely. He doesn't want me to wear something that's going to cause the opposite sex to stumble. Ladies, men are turned on by sight and sultry advances. They can't help it. They were created by God to be the pursuers. They were created by God like that. So don't cause your brothers, listen to me, to sin by dressing in a provocative way. All right? Stay away from low-cut dresses and be careful how much thigh you show. Because let me tell you something. It might, not be, it might not create a problem for you, but for a man, real talk, folks. Real talk. And if you're under 30, it's like, I mean, seriously, for a man, it can be a problem. It can be a problem. So the scriptures tell us here, remember what the scripture said here? But God does care when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leads a Christian still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. 1 John chapter 2, verses 10, verse 10 says this, 
He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So if I love my brother, I'm going to live in the light, and I'm not going to do something that's going to cause them to stumble. Now, gentlemen, women are aroused through attention and touch. So mind your manners. When you hug your sister in the Lord, hug her sideways. You hear me? The front is reserved for her babies and her husband. Hell, real talk. You just hug her sideways, okay? They're aroused through attention and touch. So mind your manners. And I put this down here. No inappropriate, quote, fellowship, unquote, with the opposite sex. Don't be calling women on the phone that are not your wife to just talk. You're married. You are married. They might be going through a very difficult time in their relationship, and all of a sudden there's another man here who is starting to show a little interest and some attention. Oh, this man, this man listens to me. My husband's not listening to me. This man is listening to me. And they're going to start having feelings towards you whether they want to or not. Don't be texting them. Don't be messaging them. Don't be flirting them with them. Don't be doing things that's inappropriate. You are married. Now, if you're single and she's single and you think, ooh, praise God, hallelujah, mm-hmm, you know, and in your mind you're thinking, honey, how would you like to make your tracks around my flower barrel all the rest of your life? You know, I mean, that's... <laughs> oh. All right, you know, all's free in, in love and war then, you know, but, uh, but God's Word says, God's Word says, that we should not do something that causes our brother or our sister to stumble. Well, that problem's just in the man. He ought not to be looking. Are you kidding me? I don't care how prayed up the man is. He's going to notice if you're dressed like you're standing in a window somewhere for somebody to window shop you. Okay? So make sure, make sure that you don't cause them to struggle. struggle. So does God care about what we wear? The answer is yes, because he doesn't want us to cause stumbling blocks. And then the Bible tells us, in the Bible, it says that we are to wear clothes, that clothing that is distinct to our gender. Now, just because this isn't popular doesn't mean it's not in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Tim and Kim, would you please stand up? Look at that. Now, turn face the congregation. Now, now how would you feel if... Tim was wearing Kim's top and Kim was wearing Tim's top. That'd be a little more, but not very good. But could you see Tim dressed like Kim? I mean, my goodness. Tim, what happens at home stays at home. This is what the Bible's talking about when it says that we shouldn't wear 
clothing that pertains to a man or clothing that pertains to a woman, depending on what is. So Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 5 basically tells us we shouldn't be cross-dressers. That's what it says. So does God care about what we wear? Yes, He does. Yes, He does. Go ahead and be seated. So here's just a few biblical principles for dress, and then we'll be through. Dress modest. Number one, be a modest dresser. Because if you don't, you could cause others to stumble. You could cause them to sin. Number two, stay in your lane. Genders matter. Gender dress matters to God. Okay? And then the third thing, remember <laughs> what's in your heart matters more to God than what's on your bod. We'll say that again. All right? Remember what's in your heart matters more to God than what's on your bod. Okay? So dress modest, stay in your lane, and remember that God loves you. Thank you for listening to Dr. Jonathan Vorse on Working the Word. We appreciate your love and support. Visit www.jvorse.org to give a gift today. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day. Always remember, the Word will work if you work the Word. Be blessed.